Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action shares of Whirlpool, Texas Instruments, and Las Vegas Sands. All three stocks on the move right now on earnings. We're taking you inside their quarters straight ahead. Plus, the Bitcoin brain trust, what Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, and Kathy Wood said today that sparked a new rally in crypto land. And later, getting real. The real, real rallying today on the back of a big upgrade. One of our traders sees even more upside ahead for this stock. We'll break that down. But first, we start with another higher move for the market. Stocks rallying into the close, adding to yesterday's gains, recouping all of Monday's losses. And this week's wild swings got our traders flagging some eye-popping moves. So our traders have come up with the three most ridiculous charts in the market. So we kick it off with... The 10-year yield falling as low as 1.13% yesterday morning before rebounding all the way back up to 1.3%. Guy, this was on your radar. Yeah, and we've been together a long time, Mel, and I think you realize pretty quickly I'm not the brightest bulb in in the knife drawer. You know what I'm saying? But one one thing I do know is the (laughs) biggest economy in the history of the world 10-year yields the most should be the most liquid security out there. It should not go, in my opinion. From 141, down to one and a quarter, back to 140, down to 113, up to 130, all in the course of basically 12 trading days. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Bond volatility is extraordinary, whereas equity volatility is not. Something's wrong here. That chart to me speaks to potentially some disruptions going forward in the equity market. Bond volatility led equity volatility back in February of 2020. I think we're on the verge of that again, Melissa Lee. Tim Seymour, how do you put the, you know, how do you add up two and two in terms of bond volatility to equity volatility? Well, first of all, I think Guy is one of the sharper pencils in the light bulb drawer. So, uh, you know, for what it's worth, <laughs> I, I think. Uh, but I, but, but I think, I think this observation, um, I think it is extraordinary. But I think we have seen bond yields for the last two years. Um, first of all, as, as as Guy has said, I think you know, bond market will lead the equity market. And I think where the bond market led us lower on yields, all, you know, well before we were concerned about Delta variants. And on some level, maybe as a function of thinking that the Fed was going to overstep their bounds. I'm not the volatility in the bond market. I don't want to see it either. Um, the fact that, that yields have overshot uh, possibly on the way up to 175 and possibly on the way down. Uh, I think the best thing is, is really some of the chart that we've had on the show and the conversation that, look, we got too far too fast and that on some level you, you saw that bond prices were way overbought or yields were oversold on the way down. I, I actually think that that was an appropriate move. And as a function of that, I think this is it sets up our other two charts. Yeah, it does. And, and without sort of jumping uh, to them, um, I still want to touch on this. I mean, unless you think the bond market is not really telling the full story because the bond market is operating like no other bond market before in history in terms of the Fed's involvement, C.U. Grasso. So do you discount these moves, or how do you factor these in? So I think think it's a large portion of this is positioning. 
So the most telegraphed trade was that inflation was going to tick higher. So people got short treasuries. They got short price, not yield. So if they're short price and they start to have that trade work against them, they have to cover that trade. So when they cover that trade, that kills yield. So while everyone was on one side of the boat thinking that yields were going to spike higher above 2%, that didn't happen. So I don't think it's the macro as much as the positioning trade. So when I look at the chart, we have to get to one spot four two in the 10 year to break out of this declining trend that we've seen for the last five months or so. For me, I think that value trade is going to rip back from here, but I still think that there's going to be a lid put on yields around that 150, 160 mark. All right, let's get to the next ridiculous chart because it does sort of all you know, dovetail together. And Karen, you flagged this one. This is the OIH oil ETF up 11% from yesterday's low. What do you see in this chart? Well, I just see, I mean, just a, I don't know if it's like lemmings running all at one time. Maybe it's the Merrill Lynch herd, the bullish herd. I don't know. But it seems, how can all this valuation just magically change just like that? I get, you know, I know why the the sentiment is because, all right, maybe we've sort of overly concerned about the Delta variant and it's not going to be that big of a deal. That might be part of it. There was some good economic data. That might be part of it. Um, I'm not really sure, but so that chart's kind of crazy to me. Obviously, we had a giant oil move and we had the OPEC move in there, which Tim talked about yesterday. But back up a little more. I think we have another chart that goes what may be considered ancient history in a market like this. But back to June of 2021 (laughs) and we see the OIH at 240. So the move from 240 to 177 is so gigantic. That's just ridiculous to me. So it, that seemed very, very oversold. And, and I, so I have some OIH now. I had it last week. I had a tight stop. It got immediately lost money out. I'm in now. I think it, it I don't think one has missed the move back up when you step back to that June chart and take a look. That is just an enormous move. Maybe we never should have been at 240, but we certainly shouldn't have been at 177 either. Guy, two charts don't make a trend, and we still have a third ridiculous chart, which we shall get to in a mere moment. Can't wait. Um, But but so far, what these two charts tell me is that the markets move in extremes. They move in in integers, not decimals, uh, when it comes to um, a short amount of time in the ground that they can cover. So what do you make of this oil move um, in that context? Because it's almost not surprising. So I'm about to get myself in a lot of trouble with you. So typically, we, if we goodbye the guests, we don't bring him or her back. Are you but going I want back to, bring to the first back chart? Quickly. Yes, quickly, quick, if, I'm, if I may. But since I'm not here, you can't hit me. I basically sure. can do what I want. You know, Steve <laughs> made a great point. I mean, positioning was crazy. He, and he mentioned boats. My pushback, and I'm not looking to necessarily have a conversation. You know, we're not talking about the SS Minnow here. We're talking about the Queen Mary. That boat shouldn't move as quickly as it has. That's just my point about bonds. In terms of the OIH, I'm with Karen. Same type of thing. It shouldn't move that way. But if you're looking to play it, I don't think it's over. I think Tim would probably agree. I think the energy trade paused and it was painful. But Halliburton, for example, traded down to 19 and change, same low as we made back in April. I think you have really tradable levels here in the OIH and individual stocks. 
Halliburton sticks out to me, Mel. I'm sorry. Don't get mad at me, please. I'm begging you. I never can I remain. I was mad at you for a split <laughs> second, but that's past. Um, Grosso, though, if, if I if I read these two charts as yeah. a story, then um, though it, it would tell me that investors believe that the recovery is on. Is that a storyline you can buy into? Yes, and, and I, I can buy into that because we're going to see a, a boom in the economy once it does really kick up, and once we leave the Delta variant headlines behind us, or at least maybe they're not that impactful. But when Guy brought back the guest with the 10-year yield, if you overlay those charts, they look very similar, if not identical, the OIH and the 10-year yield path. That means to me that positioning told you what, which way the yields were going, and now the rest of the market is buying it based on yield or selling it, to Karen's point, from 248 down to 177. I think if you're a trader, and there's a lot of people out there watching, I think you can bounce back in the OIH, probably to the 212 area, which is in between the 50-day moving average and the 100-day moving average, almost smack in the middle if you're a trader. All right, well, let's get to our final ridiculous chart of this evening. And that would be the giant move in U.S. Steel, and perhaps this also mirrors the prior two charts. No, I am not bringing back the guests, so to speak. The stock is up 5% this week alone. Tim, you flagged this one. Zany, cuckoo. I mean, what else can we say? You know, but but it, but not so much when you consider that, uh, first of all, steel prices um, have actually held uh, a lot of the gains that they've had from pre-COVID, which are about two and a half times for hot rolled coil. Um, I chose steel because, first of all, it is a, a, a higher beta and U.S. steel certainly to other call them. It's not even a resource play. It's it's an industrial play. And, and, and a close second zany chart for me might have been the, the XLI or the industrials. But let me take steel. That 13 percent move off those intraday lows on Monday are, are more you know, illustrative of where I just think you know, whether it is is um, auto production, whether it is steel, whether it is home builders. Um, these are, are sectors that I think are going to continue to be booming in the second half. So a, a lot of this really was uh, everything trading together. And, and I think the fact that you've actually seen this recovery Look, let's be clear also, as much as we talked about how the S&P and certainly the NASDAQ 100 were largely saved by, by FANG names over the previous five, six weeks, uh, the S&P uh, is up 3% from two, you know, around 2.30 p.m. on Monday, late in the day of trading to where we closed today. So uh, I think a lot of this cyclicality, industrials, transports, resources um, have actually carried the market, and, and I think they will continue to carry it, which I, is what I hear everybody saying, at least in the short term. Yeah. Um, Guy, put, put together these th charts, the snapback move in yields, snap higher in OIH, snap higher in U.S. Steel. The growth scare is probably overdone. The, the, um, the, I guess the reopening trade is alive and well, and in terms of resources, they're not going away, and I think Tim would agree with this as well. You go back to March of 2018, yep. U.S. Steel was a $45 stock on its way to 60 before the administration came out with the tariffs. And we can argue whether or not that was the right thing or wrong thing. That's just fact. The stock went from 45 to 9 over the course of about two years or so. I would submit the steel industry has probably never been better situated. Uh, and U.S. Steel has probably never been run better. And here we are at 24 bucks. I mean, I'm not saying it's going back to 45. But in the earnings on July 29th, there's no reason why this shouldn't have a three handle in front of it. So actually, based on what you all are telling me tonight, 
maybe these aren't the most ridiculous charts in the market. They might be ridiculous moves, Karen, but the narrative that these charts tell is one that the recovery is intact. Right. Well, so maybe we're ridiculous and the charts are not, right? That could be (laughs) the case as well. But I... (laughs) Yes, that is right. Yes, we know it. Um, But I I think that the recovery story is still intact. Um, I've thought it was intact. I think we still have a huge back to school season. I think we still have um, a rebuilding of inventory. Right. So that's going to be partial boom. And the other thing about where we are in the recovery, I think given all the supply chain disruptions, Companies don't want to get back to the inventory levels they had before. They want to get back to more inventory and more cushion, I think. So I feel like that's going to be a tailwind for uh, industrials for a while, for manufacturing as well, for a while. Coming up, we're tracking the after-hours action in shares of Texas Instruments, Whirlpool, and Las Vegas Sands. All three of those stocks are on the move right now on earnings. We'll dive into the quarter straight ahead and later, Bitcoin breaking back above 30K today. What Elon Musk said about the cryptocurrency that added new fire to this trade. Details when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts on Texas Instruments and Las Vegas Sands. Both stocks lower in the after-hour session. Full team coverage standing by to break down the reports. Contessa Brewer digging in on LVS, but we kick things off with Josh Lipton and Texan. Josh. 
So, Melissa, remember this stock heading into this print was up about 20% so far this year. It was only about 3% off its all-time high, but we are now giving some of that back in the after hours. As for the results, beats on the bottom and top for Q3 EPS guidance, 187 to 213 versus 197 on the top between 4.4 and 4.76 billion. 4.6 was expected there. I checked in with Stacey Rasgon over at Bernstein. He says the quarter was strong. Gross margins also strong, but revenue guidance that was weaker than expected and a surprise there. On the call, executives saying by end market, industrial, auto, and personal electronics were strong. As for lead times, most products are steady, but growing demand, they say, means some lead times are extending, so they are now adding capacity. On the call, I'll tell you, some analysts did sound a bit frustrated. They, listen, they said strong demand, you're increasing supply, so why the conservative guidance, they asked. Executives simply saying the last few quarters have been strong. Our guidance does suggest another strong quarter. This is the best estimate we have right now. Stacey Rasgon saying that demand is strong right now, but they don't know how long that lasts. Nobody does. So maybe they just don't want to stick their necks out too far at this point. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. And Guy, why would they? And I also feel like we, we've been here before with Texas Instruments. Decent quarter, good quarter, um, and a move lower. Conservative guide. It's all about the third quarter guide because the quarter is very good. Operating margins of 48 percent were stellar. I mean, it is a strong quarter, but the guide has people scared. And then they say, wait a second, why am I paying close to 25 times next year's numbers for Texan with, I don't know, 7 percent EPS growth when I could be in an AMD or an NVIDIA or a tech or a chip stock that actually has growth? And oh, yeah, maybe we're paying up on the P.E. multiple, but at least it's justified. Huge double top now potentially at this 195 level. If you go back to April, the stock should probably trade into the high 170s, and then I think you buy it there. Yeah. Grasso? Yeah, interesting. Usually Guy and I are on the same page, and I agree with a lot of what he said except for the last part. I think that this stock probably trades above that uh, double top area of 197 that Guy uh, referred to, and I think you could see this thing pop above 200. Obviously, the 10-year yield is going to have the impact on this, the inverse impact on this that we saw the OIH. Uh, so if you see yields continue to grind higher, the whole tech space will probably either move sideways to lower. But Texas Instruments looks like it's been building a base right around this level. So if I had a bet, I would bet over 200. All right. Uh, let's get to LVS. Stock lower in the after hours. Contessa Brewer's got this details. Contessa. Melissa, COVID restrictions are still a significant challenge for Las Vegas Sands. We heard it on the call. It's clear in Macau, the company says social distancing and travel barriers and closures in this quarter added up to visitation that's only 22 percent of 2019 levels. And yet mass gaming revenue came in at 45 percent compared to 2019. So that means visitors who are making this trek are spending more on the call. The company says uh, Wilford Rung, especially the uh, president of Sands China says a travel bubble among China, Hong Kong, Macau would be the best bet here. Singapore, you're looking at the same deal. Capacity limits, travel restrictions. CEO Rob Goldstein said on the call at this point, it's a locals market. And then you've got Las Vegas Sands, which Sands is selling for $6.25 billion. The Venetian and Palazzo, of course, rely on strong group business, which didn't resume in Vegas until the first week of June. And yet Sands has continued paying all its employees through the pandemic. That was an effort begun by the late CEO and chairman Sheldon Adelson. Let's look forward here. The company is grabbing headlines for its push to get Florida voters to approve more casinos. Its efforts in New York and Texas. It's exploring digital and online opportunities. But on the call, CEO Rob Goldstein said 
he's doubling down on Macau and Singapore. He says he has no doubt the company's position to make more money than it did before the pandemic. He just doesn't know when that's going to happen. He says the focus on those two markets is Sands' best chance to see six, seven, eight billion dollars in EBITDA. They've got a long way to go to get back to those days. Melissa. Yeah. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. I'm not knowing when, Tim, seems like a a problem for investors <laughs> when you're trying to figure out what a company is, is worth. Is that the right bet that the CEO is making that eventually it's Asia where the money will be made? It's absolutely the right bet. And, and if you look at some of the competitors, I, I think they've been actually a little bit more bullish and certainly some of the Asian competitors like, like Melco. So I, I, like, I, I love the fact that they're focused there. They're absolutely right. And, and if you think about where uh, the, the, you know, this unknown is going to end up, it's going to end up in the demand trends continuing to grow, especially in mass market. We know VIP is there. Um, I, look at the stock at 46 bucks. This is where you know, on, a, on a one-year look back, we've had plenty of support. We, we you know, this ultimately you could be putting airlines and cruise lines and casinos also in one of these cuckoo charts. Um, if you wait, I think a couple more weeks because uh, all of the fear of float of slowdown is is obvious and maybe people aren't running straight there. Um, but I do think in Asia, look, is, is on some level. Southern Asia is going through a, a, a bigger scare than they, they really had gone through yet in this crisis. But um, ultimately, that will abate. There is a vaccine. Uh, I think you're scooping up these shares now. All right. Coming up, we've got more earnings on our radar tonight. Shares of Whirlpool on the move after its report. We'll dive into the numbers on this home improvement trade. But first, a Bitcoin backtrack. The crypto starting to crawl back recent losses until you guessed it. Elon Musk opened his mouth. The latest comments that put a damper on this rally. Stay tuned. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin rallying today as three power players, Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey and Kathy Wood, gathered together to talk about the entire crypto trade. Let's get to Kate Rooney with all the highlights. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. Three of the most influential people in the industry talking crypto today. Investors were paying close attention to this panel hosted by the Crypto Council for Innovation. First, Ethereum got a boost after Tesla CEO Elon Musk says that he owns that cryptocurrency. Musk was wearing a Bitcoin shirt, though. He says he's still a fan of that cryptocurrency and he owns Bitcoin. He also owns Dogecoin and talked a bit about that. He highlighted Tesla holding Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Another headline here, Musk says SpaceX owns Bitcoin as well. Musk talked about some of the accusations that he's manipulating prices or is somehow anti-Bitcoin. Take a listen. I might pump, but I don't dump. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it, it's not a case of um, I, I definitely do not believe in, in, in getting the price high and selling or anything like that. Um, so uh, and I would like to see Bitcoin succeed. The Tesla CEO once again brought up the environmental impact of crypto mining. Tesla stopped taking Bitcoin as payment earlier this year. But Musk says the car company 
will most likely resume accepting Bitcoin again at some point. He didn't say exactly when. Jack Dorsey, meanwhile, talked about Square's ambitions. That includes building a Bitcoin wallet so that customers can have custody of their own crypto. He compared Bitcoin to the early Internet. He calls it the eventual currency of the Internet, and he hopes it brings world peace. So some hopeful words there by Jack Dorsey. Finally, Kathy Wood maintaining her bullish stance. She talked about apps being built on top of certain blockchains like Bitcoin, and she calls ARK Invest the closest thing to a publicly traded venture capital firm. Melissa, back to you. Kate, we do know separately from, from this talk that, that uh, ARK Invest did take advantage of that big dip that we saw on Monday, correct? That's right. Kathy Wood saying that she has been a consistent buyer of these Bitcoin dips, uh, and mostly through Coinbase and some, some of the Bitcoin proxies. So um, ARK has really been bullish on some of the sort of not necessarily Bitcoin itself, but the companies that benefit, whether it's Coinbase or GBTC. But Kathy Wood, again, very bullish on Bitcoin and talking about sort of the, the long-term strategy here. All right, Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. Karen Feinerman, what stood out to you? I mean, what, mm-hmm. put a, I mean, can we put up that screen again? I mean, that's nuts. <laughs> Three people. It, but Jack it's not Dorsey, nuts for Kathy Bitcoin, Wood, and Elon Musk. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, Tim would come up, Tim or Guy, with three great entertainers who would be like, oh, my God, that's like, you know, the whatever pinnacle of the great entertainer. So the great bulls of Bitcoin. I'm actually surprised it wasn't up more, given how excited they sound and given how far Bitcoin has fallen. So um, I view that response as somewhat muted. You know, it's nice two or three thousand at one, two and a half thousand. I don't know where it closed up, seventeen hundred maybe or so. But I think, you know, if we go back six months and Elon had said that I may accept Bitcoin in the future for Tesla, that would have been worth a lot more. But, um, you know, I view the story is still intact, but it's definitely in a bear market. This wasn't a, a giant bounce to me. And that he put it on SpaceX's balance sheet as well. So um, from a technical standpoint, Grasso, given the volatility we've seen in Bitcoin over time uh, and, and the sort of relatively muted response, as Karen had pointed out, is this actually negative, bearish for Bitcoin, do you think? I don't think it's bearish. And when Karen said, if you go back uh, six months, but six or seven months, if you went back six or seven months, you could see the apparentness of the base that the 30,000 level in Bitcoin has been. And it's been uh, bouncing off that level pretty decisively. And I, I think all the believers, the masters of the universe that you just uh, quoted and had on, on, on those uh, sound on tapes, if you will, all of them would probably love to see this thing at, at $250,000 a coin. I think we're going to look back one day and everyone gets a shot and everyone on the show has said the same thing. When, when, the, when the, the coins trade up to that $65,000 mark, everyone says, oh, they're going to 150. When they trade down to 30,000, no one wants to buy them. But the truth is, I think we'll probably blow through that 65,000 level and we'll all be talking about it on the show when Bitcoin's 100 to $150,000 a coin. For more reaction uh, from today's crypto conference, let's bring in Coinmetric co-founder and Castle Island Ventures partner Nick Carter, who gave a presentation at today's conference on how institutions can embrace Bitcoin. Nick, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. As a crypto insider, what got you most excited about this talk? 
Well, the talk I gave pertained to Bitcoin's energy consumption, which has been enormously in the news lately, and of course has been one of Elon's issues with uh, you know the asset, and it was discussed today during his own panel. And the point I was really laying out was simply the fundamentals are getting better in terms of uh, the sustainability of Bitcoin. So when Elon Musk is concerned about the environmental aspect and he says that likely Tesla will accept Bitcoin as payment at some point in terms, you know, from the environmental standpoint, since that was the primary reason why he stopped it in the first place. When do you think that resolves itself to the point where he might start doing it? Well, what he said today was cause for optimism for sure. And I'm glad that he has begun to evaluate the facts on the ground because they're very favorable. Uh, we're, you know, China turned off Bitcoin mining, they effectively banned it. And that Chinese hash rate was very much influenced by energy produced by coal. Uh, and you know, a lot of the new hash rate, uh, some of those miners are relocating, uh, some of them will never come back online. A lot of that's being replaced by mining in Canada and the US where miners are much more sustainably focused. We're also seeing a lot more disclosure from miners. 32% of hash rate joined a council, Bitcoin mining council, and they've produced quarterly disclosures now. Uh, and within that sample, uh, the miners were 67% renewable or nuclear powered. So the miners that are disclosing, and a lot of these are Western miners that are exposed to Western capital markets, are you know, disproportionately sustainable in their operations. So all Elon had to do was look at the ground truth. And you know, it seems like he's changing his tone now. Yeah, I mean, in the span in which he said that he would, he had concerns and he was going to stop accepting Bitcoin as payment, Bitcoin did turn off the mining. And so I'm wondering how, how, um, how much greener did mining become when China banned it? We're not going to know for sure until we can pinpoint where uh, some of this hash rate is migrating to. On the one hand, it may go to Kazakhstan, which has a carbon intense grid, or it might go to the U.S. We know it's lots of new hash rate is being onshored in the US, may go to Canada, which has a low carbon intensity grid, might go to Hydra in Russia, or other places that we haven't thought of. So it's going to be a matter of months before we can actually determine where those miners are going. But regardless, we know for a fact there's all these publicly traded miners raising capital in the US, getting deliveries of new ASICs. And those miners, by and large, are seeking out sustainable energy. They're, some of them are buying carbon offsets. They're much more pro- sustainability than the largely anonymous Chinese miners that we had before. What's your guess uh, in terms of, of Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin becoming green enough for Tesla to start again? I mean, you said a matter of months. You think, you think, you know, accepting it as payment follows shortly afterwards? Well, it's an arbitrary threshold kind of imposed by Elon himself. So I can't know what he's thinking exactly. Of course, I think Bitcoin is perfectly suitable for payments today. And of course, the environmental costs are offset by its enormous utility. Uh, so any amount of uh, carbon intensity would be sufficient to warrant accepting Bitcoin payments, in my it sounds, view. It sounds like, though, you think that in a matter of months, the, the greenness, if you will, of Bitcoin will increase astronomically just because it's going to be relocated most likely to areas that use less carbon intensive um, power to, to power it. Right now, I'd say we're in a wait and see mode. I'm very okay. optimistic. The data we have is good, uh, for sure, in terms of sustainability. But it is just going to be a matter of seeing where those miners do actually end up locating themselves, for sure. Nick, great to have you with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
Nick Carter. Um, Tim, I focus on it because on, on this aspect because Bitcoin got a boost when Elon Musk said he was going to accept payment. And when a big company, S&P 500 company like Tesla, starts accepting Bitcoin as payment, that could actually open uh, the floodgates for more companies to make that same move. It was it was part of the floodgate to 60,000, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, yeah. the discussion of one percent of, of, of Treasury of corporate balance sheets was was enough to get people there. Um, and I, you know, I, I recognize that that uh, the headlines that are created by Elon um, and by Kathy Wood and to I think to a lesser extent, because I don't think Jack Dorsey seeking headlines um, are, are, are really important for sentiment. But um, my guess is they don't get anywhere near the top, you know, the top echelon of most influential people in, in Bitcoin and in crypto. Um, they just happen to be people that are influencers. So, I mean, it's, it's nice to know that, that, that Tesla may at some point adopt. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's going to really be more about the, the, the actual adoption of corporate America, but also the continued development on top of these platforms. Uh, I think the Ethereum news today was probably more important. Coming up, we are breaking down Whirlpool's quarter. The stock is on the move in the after hours. We'll tell you how our traders are playing this report and later. A real opportunity, the real real moving higher in the back of an upgrade. One of our traders says this rally is just getting started. We'll break down that trade. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We got another earnings alert for you on Whirlpool shares on the move in the after hours. Let's get to Christina Parts Nebulis with all the details. Christina. You have a huge jump in sales along with an increase in full year guidance. Whirlpool's latest quarter came with a double beat. Adjusted earnings per share came in at $6.64, higher than anticipated, with revenue at $5.32 billion. That was much higher than anticipated at $5.03 billion. So sales, they climbed 32% in the quarter. The pandemic, as we know, led to a huge jump in durable goods as many people picked up washing machines and refrigerators and appliances for the home, even despite higher prices. In April, the CFO did say that Whirlpool increased prices in every region of the world, ranging from 5 to 12 percent. So now Whirlpool does see earnings of about $26.95 per share from prior guidance of $22.50. So they did increase their full year guidance, but that still wasn't good enough for the shares and after our trading. Why? Because the appliance maker did they said that they expect to spend roughly one billion dollars more on raw materials like larger resins and steel costs and the company warned profit could take a five percent hit in 2021 so we could also expect higher prices to offset those costs melissa christina thanks um gotta go to you tim seymour on this whirlpool trade Look, I, I, you know, I'm not worried about 5% in additional costs when they just up their earnings by 18%. I mean, look, at, at 27 bucks a share diluted 21, this, this company's trading at eight times. I mean, the demand uh, for, I, I think, you know, consistent with the, the kooky chart part of the, of the show at the start of the show, I, you know, I just, the, the industrial demand around their products, the thawing of some of the inventory and supply chain uh, freezing is is exciting. So, um, I, you know, I, I'm not sure what investors really want. I think there's a disconnect here uh, between understanding raw material costs, which, by the way, at least right now, have very much come down from where they were six weeks ago. Um, I, I think they will still be a factor. And I think all companies are talking about this. But their businesses uh, and their ability to pass on these prices to customers is clear by their profitability. I mean, that's what didn't add up to me, Guy, and that is, you know, a billion dollars in additional costs. But the CFO says 
price increases that Christina had talked about, they will offset um, those increased costs. And so here we are down 1% still. Yeah, as will the guidance to Tim's point. I mean, I would submit yeah. the stock is cheaper now than it was, you know, four hours ago in terms of valuation. And, and Tim makes a great point. I mean, it's just dirt cheap. People say, well, you know, cyclical stocks of this nature, you don't buy them when they're cheap. I push back and say, it's not as cyclical as it used to be. I just think the stock's too cheap here. They spoke about inflation, and we talk about that all the time. It's clearly there in spades, but they're going to be able to, one, pass it on, and it's offset by their guidance. So I'm not really sure what the market's looking at, but I wouldn't be surprised if you see analysts raise their price targets over the next week or so. Karen, you did buy this one. Yeah, I'm long, I'm long, I was long going in. Um, I, I, I mean, I think I wouldn't be surprised also if analysts raise their estimates. To me, it's very reminiscent of GM during that phase where everyone thought peak auto. I mean, these numbers are great and the cash flow is great and the pre is really cheap, but peak auto, peak auto. And it took a while for GM to finally start to get some kind of re-rating. And I think they don't see the end of this this. Um, I don't know, revenue, it's not an improvement, right? Otherwise, why would, they, why would they increase their guidance? This cash flow generation, this company now is almost a 10% free cash flow yield, which is incredibly cheap. So if I owned none, I would be buying it right here. I think it might just sit there and be, you know, <laughs> peak washing machine multiple for a while, but I'm happy owning that because they'll just continue to make money. We'll see the buy, uh, increase their buyback is my strong guess. I bet they're buying back stock as soon as tomorrow. I don't think they could buy while they're, before earnings. All right, coming up, a real, real rally. Why investors are taking a shine to the luxury reseller today. Plus, there's still a strong slate of earnings ahead this week. We're digging into the key names. You should keep an eye on ahead of results. We're back right after this. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim sitting down with Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff for an exclusive can't miss interview that is at the top of the hour only on Mad Money. All right, check out shares of Alibaba having a bit of a breakdown this year, but options traders are betting the Chinese tech stock is about to take off. Let's get to Mike Coe with all the action. Mike. Yeah, so taking a look at Baba today, we saw that calls outpace puts by more than four to one. A lot of that activity was relatively short dated. We saw a lot of activity, for example, in the July 30th, 215 strike calls. And then looking out to the 215 and 217 and a half calls that expire in August, those would capture earnings. But the most interesting trade was actually flagged by Karen. And I took a look at it. This were the January 2023 285 strike calls. So well out of the money. Over 2,200 of those traded for $15 a piece. Remember, each contract represents 100 shares, so that's $1,500 per contract or an outlay of about $3.3 million in premium betting that this is a stock that could rally 50% or more in the next 18 months. Wow. Um, So, Karen, what did you make of that trade when you saw it? Uh, I was excited to say for options actor for, yeah, to uh, whoever was doing it today. Glad it's my co. Um, that's just, I mean, that's extremely bullish. You know, the, it has to be at 300 before you start making money. So you have 18 months for that to work. I kind of hoping um, that it works sooner than that. Um, but it's a very bullish trade. I'm long. Clearly, it's been painful for months, but I'm staying long. I'm willing to ride out the risk of... Uh, the whims of the Chinese government. 
When do you say um, the People's Republic of China and the government uh, Grasso outweighs the fundamentals? Or have you have you reached that point yourself? No, uh, yes, I have reached that point myself. And when I look at the chart, the, you know, this has been on a declining trend for quite some time. So that's the obvious statement. It has to trade above that 230 range to break out of that declining trend line. But it is a roll of the dice when you're, to your point, when you're betting against or with uh, the Chinese government because that you have no edge there and you don't know what U.S.-China relations are going to be. Under Trump, we knew that there was going to be head-to-head battles. Under Biden, we're not really sure what it's going to look like. At the end of the day, I think you're at the mercy of the Chinese government. That's not where I would like to be uh, right now in a stock. Yeah. Tim, you also hold it. I do. And, and I, I think that the discount rate as a function of sovereign risk is, is what it's all about with this stock. It's not a, it's not a question about, you know, 22 to 25 percent growth uh, across both their cloud, but their GMV and, and the dominant the dominant player, the national champion company. And, and, and actually, I think the current administration is, is uh, you know, potentially more of a headwind for the stock than the former one. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't think the Trump administration was actually going after Chinese companies that were trying to do business in China. And I think the, the Chinese government is, from a regulatory perspective, and again, anti-monopoly and some of the things that they were pushing very hard on early on, I thought were, were actually constructive in that they were helping to define the rules of the game. Right now, I'm not sure I understand the rules. Um, and I've seen this before in a Emerging markets. I haven't turned the other way on this, but but I, I, I you know I'm I'm you know 200 to 205 and then 180. Traders have to think about risk at those levels. Yeah, Mike, you own the equity in Alibaba, so you're with Karen as well as Tim. Um, how do you sort of parse out the geopolitical risk to this trade? Yeah, well, I mean, as for the rules, you know, you're saying what are they? They're capricious, is what they are, and arbitrary, and of course that's the risk. But I can understand why somebody might make a bet like this. I mean, consider it in basically where the stock was nine months ago. The thing was just under 320 bucks a share. Uh, under any other circumstances in any other uh, domicile, you know, met, basically the kind of growth that you see in this company, the opportunity that they have, uh, this thing would be trading, you know, probably 400 bucks. So uh, I think when you risk 7% of the equity, betting that the stock could just get back to where it was, and by the way, uh, their earnings are going to be at least double by that, you know, basically looking up to that January 2023 level. If it gets back there, it's going to be trading at half the valuation it was the last time it traded at 320. So I think that's the reason somebody's making this bet. And it's somebody fairly substantial, right? Because $3.3 million in premium outlay would represent a position of about $66 million notionally in the stock if it gets there. But they are capping their risk. So I think this is arguably a sensible way to play it. All right, Mike, good to see you. Thank you. We'll see you Friday for the full show, Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we're setting up for tomorrow, plus your final trade. Welcome back. Another big slate of earnings coming our way tomorrow. Intel, Twitter, Snap, all report after the bell. Um, So, Karen, what are you watching? I'm going to watch Snap. I am really interested to hear what the new Apple, Apple privacy update, which I think took place at the end of April, um, what, what that means for them. So they lose all that targeted data. How big a deal is that for them? Are their customers, uh, are, are they not advertising as much because they're not as confident of how effective the ads will be? And what does that mean for Facebook? All right. 
Good one. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Another chart that could have been a part of today is Freeport Mac, obviously, uh, up about 7.5% since those lows on Monday. I, I think copper prices are actually stable here. If you look at the base metal, uh, supply-demand is, is in favor, I, I think, of, of an upward move even in copper prices. So Freeport. Steve Grasso. I'm looking for a proxy to Bitcoin because I do believe it moves higher. So M-A-R-A, Marathon Digital. It's a crypto miner, and it's a hell of a lot easier to buy a $25 stock versus a $32,000 coin. Karen. Whirlpool. Love the cash flow. Guy. NASDAQ. Thanks for watching Fast. See you tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package list and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.